it's such a it's such a weirdly counterintuitive thing i i honestly think marketers are our own worst enemy sometimes in fact there's something i'm determined to kind of crush in the industry is we as marketers we often try and make things overly complex and the only reason we do that is because we're insecure and we're like well if we can make things really complex then we'll seem really important and everyone will be going oh they must be a genius um, but in reality marketing's not that hard it's just understanding the needs of your client, getting them to picture that preferred future, and then talking to them in a way where they understand that. Hi, I'm Caitlin Pyatt, owner of Authentic Branding and Marketing, where I work with female entrepreneurs to brand, market, and grow their small businesses. I'm your host for this podcast, Startup Marketing. I'm a mom of three and entrepreneur, so if you ever hear little kids in the background, it's just my life, I'm trying to make this all work while I build a business. I worked as a corporate marketer for over 12 years where I focused on marketing and branding strategy along with marketing management. Often, I heard small business owners say they weren't doing any marketing because they couldn't afford to outsource it to an agency and they didn't know how to do it themselves. When I started my business, I knew I could take my expertise and my experience to help women thrive by teaching them how to create strategic marketing plans they could feel confident about and show them the tools to make managing their marketing easy and efficient. So if you're an entrepreneur out there who's Googling how to brand and market your business, you've come to the right place. The goal of Startup Marketing is to make all of my marketing knowledge accessible and actionable so you can take it and level up your business. I'm a huge marketing nerd, and I'm passionate about sharing everything I know with you. This podcast is genuinely one of my favorite things to create. So get ready to learn about all things marketing. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Startup Marketing. I am all about today's guest and conversation because he is a fellow marketer just like me, which I'm sure you will hear for yourself because I can't help it. I use marketing nerd when I get around other marketers that think like me. So, you know, the nerd just can't be stopped. Today's guest is Vince Warnock. Vince is an award-winning business and marketing strategist, coach, and author of Chasing the Insights. An ex-radio announcer with over 20 years in marketing, Vince has founded multiple companies, including Chasing the Insights Academy, where he empowers entrepreneurs and business owners to grow the businesses they have always dreamed of. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Vince, and welcome to Startup Marketing. It's nice to have you here today. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> Thank you. I am. I have been looking forward to this conversation since we had our pre-call, so I'm super excited <laughs> today. So tell us a little bit about your background, what it is you do. Cool. Oh, man, this is going to take hours now, Jerry. Um, <laughs> so I, I've got, I've actually have a very a varied background. Um, I trained as an electronics computer and software engineer mainly because I wanted to be the guy that made all the gadgets for James Bond and Batman, then found out that's not a viable career option, that Batman is actually yeah, not real, right. and James Bond, yeah. I was like, like no. Disappointed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, And then, then I discovered that the reason I was so into electronics and computers and everything was because I'm very passionate about technology. I love technology. I love what it can unlock. I love what it can do for people. But then becoming an electronics engineer and being locked literally in a lab with a lab coat. Back then, I actually had hair. I had long hair and a goatee, crazy thought, uh, with a lab coat on designing incubators and plant growth chambers and things. And I started going loopy. I'm like, I need to be around people. And people, even though technology is a passion, people is what motivates me. And what It's what gets me out of bed every day. I love understanding people, understanding why they do, they do the things that they do, what motivates them, what challenges them, what their fears are, all these kind of things. 
So I changed careers a number of times during that. I ended up working on radio for a, a number of years on one of our top radio stations here as an announcer. That was my dream job. Like seriously, ever since I was seven years old, I had a, I built a crystal radio set and I used to sit there at night and listen to these DJs. And I was going, wait, you are getting paid to play music and to hang out with cool people and joke around. This is awesome. And then I got the job and I'm like, it really was that awesome. It was so much fun, except for one factor, which is um, the lack of pay. It's one of the most poorly paid jobs. So I mean, I, this is not sustainable. Um, but in the end, I realized that there is an intersection between these two passions, between technology and between understanding people and their behavior. And that, of course, is, is marketing. It's digital marketing, particularly. Um, so I did freelance web design for a while and then ended up kind of accidentally falling into digital marketing. Found out I was really, really good at it. Uh, won a number of awards. Uh, and then decided to throw it all away, everything away to start my own company and a technology company um, and realized that I then had to become a CEO, uh, chief marketing officer, chief sales officer, everything all in one uh, and grew that for a number of years before we sold it um, and moved on to becoming the chief marketing officer at Cigna Insurance. And it was a crazy journey, but going back into corporate life um, was a huge relief. I almost want to say it's a holiday, but if any of my colleagues are listening to this, they will, they will get really annoyed with me. Um, so it wasn't a holiday, but compared to running your own company and having to travel nonstop around the world, um, it certainly was something really different. And I got to spend more time with my family, which is really important to me. Um, so at that point, I was like, okay, did that for about five years. And I realized I needed a change. I published my first book um, called Chasing the Insights. And then I found this calling, this like thing pulling me and pulling me to write my next book. Um, and it's come out of my own experiences, my own struggles, my own challenges, and the amount of people I see with those as well and wanting to help them. So I started to realize as a chief marketing officer, which is an amazing job and it was an incredible company, really ethical company, which is unusual these days for large corporates. <laughs> um, so I loved working there from that aspect. I love the obscene amount of pay that they pay you, by the way, <laughs> which is always handy. But the fact is, I wasn't feeling authentic to myself. And I was talking with the CEO saying, look, I'm the type of person I need to be at the front of where I'm impacting people. I need to know that I'm helping people as much as possible. And as a C-suite executive, you, you're, you're quite far removed from that impact. Um, so I was feeling like I wasn't operating as myself. I was feeling disingenuous. And, and I really felt this call to write my next book. So the CEO tried everything to try and make it work. We're like, do we get a part-time? Do we, do we take time off and come back after writing another book? And I was like, none of this works. All of this is there to serve me. None of it is there to serve the, you guys. And I feel, I feel ethically I have an issue with this. So that meant it was time to leave. So January 2020, I'm losing track of all time here, Kevin. <laughs> I don't even know what year we're in. Um, January 2020, I pulled the plug and decided I was going to leave there and just focus on writing my next book. That then very quickly morphed into writing two books at the same time because um, turns out I'm a moron and <laughs> I love a big challenge. Um, then to launching my podcast, which has been an absolute blast, um, and then accidentally falling into coaching because it turns out the second you leave a job where you're working pretty much 24-7 and then people realize, hey, Vince has got some time on his hands and I really need his help. Uh, then I had a line of people going, hey, we want you to coach us. We want you to mentor us. And so that then launched a coaching career. And then this year, I'm, I'm doing another virtual summit. And then last year, I'm doing another virtual summit. And then I'm launching a group program so I can impact even more uh, entrepreneurs as well. So, so that, in a nutshell, is my whirlwind tour of my, my long, <laughs> illustrious life. <laughs> it's, very, it's very impressive and very, very exciting. So are your books 
is your was your first book self-published or did you uh, yes yeah now self-published i i wanted to mainly because um well, there's two aspects to wanting to self-publish. One is when you publish, you you sell a little bit of yourself there as well, um, because you you d- you don't have as much control over the book as you probably think you do when you go through a publishing house. Um, and I know every publishing house is going to get annoyed when they hear that, but that's <laughs> the fact. Um, the other thing too is I haven't been that impressed by the marketing of most of the publishing houses. And uh, you know, I'm a marketer. This is this is my jam. This is what I do. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, then I can publish it myself and market it the way I want to market it. I want to be able to give away as many free copies as I can. I want to use it as a lead magnet, but also want to use it at conferences and things like that as well. Um, So, yeah, so I went through the whole self-publishing thing, did learn a lot through that self-publishing. In fact, I'm coaching about five people at the moment that had to write their first book purely from all the mistakes and the decisions I made publishing my first book. And I'm going, don't do that do this instead. So it's awesome. I've known like a handful of people. So I guess I just haven't like paid attention to the publishing world really. And like in the past year, I feel like I've had a handful of friends that have like self-published books that I had no idea were like just little pieces of fiction and things like that. Um, I've known a couple of like colleagues and things that have self-published. And I was like, who knew this is like such a big but oh. it just seems like such a huge undertaking and yeah. I didn't even like realize that so many people were doing it. So it, it is, cool. it, yeah, it is a huge undertaking. It's also uh, in, in all honesty, it's something I highly recommend to most entrepreneurs, um, particularly uh, from an angle of thought leadership. If you really want to position yourself as a thought leader in the industry, the doors that open from being a published author is incredible. Even if you're self-publishing and there's ways to kind of mix the two of those, which I teach, but um, there's the doors that it opens are amazing. Like people just, it's one of those sad things where people take you far more serious when you're an author, even though you're exactly the same person you were before you were an author. But anyway, <laughs> you've still got the same amount of things to say, but some reason they go, oh, you're an author. You must know a thing or two. Um, so, so there's that aspect. But the other thing is writing a book is incredibly cathartic. And it's, it is a lot of work, but it's not as hard as you think. Like Honestly, the, you can start writing. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's published her book. She wrote for eight minutes a day. That's all she did. Eight minutes a day, she committed to continually writing a book. I did uh, half an hour a day. So I just kept writing for half an hour a day. Now I do about 45 minutes because I'm writing two books and, and I'm a little bit behind on my schedule. So 45 minutes, maybe even an hour at the moment. Um, but it just takes commitment and consistently turning up. But what it does is, A, it's a huge sense of accomplishment when you've done it. But the other thing is it helps you to structure your thinking. So as an entrepreneur, particularly if you're a coach or you're teaching people, it really allows you to create your framework. It allows you to structure your kind of programs and everything based off what you're writing for a book as well. So um, so I found it incredibly cathartic and really quite powerful as well. Hmm, that's super. I'm going to have to look into that. Not something you're going to have to write a book. You're putting <laughs> it out there now. <laughs> We're expecting right. a book from you in a year's time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, Okay, yeah, I'm gonna have to look into that. I don't know if it's a 2021 commitment, but uh, <laughs> eight <laughs> minutes a day, just saying 10 months, you'll have a book. <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. like those are starting to pile up. I was making yeah. I was making a mental note the other day of like the things that I do for like 15 or 20, you know, like meditation. Yeah. And then I signed up for this like um kind of like uh I don't know if you've heard of Noom. Um honestly, yep. like I thought I was signing up for like their free trial and I ended up with a three-month program but that's besides <laughs> so, but you know it's like five minutes a day to like it's basically like food psychology which again wasn't what I thought I was getting so I yeah. want to send them a note about like the, the, the landing page that I was on but um 
you know, I was like totaling all these things up. I was like, I've got that and I've got this and then yep. you know, like my workout. And, you know, I was just like, Hmm, I'm going to spend a lot of time. So I'll just add, you know, why not? I'll just add. There you go. There you go. Just sacrifice day. sleep. That'll work. Just, you, just less, eight minutes less of sleep a day. You'll be fine. <laughs> I, I told my husband the other night, I was like, I'm, I'm so backlogged on like editing and our seven month old is teething and she's not oh. like sleeping the best. Like last night we were up until probably 2 a.m. before Ouch. she finally like went to sleep and stayed asleep for like any stretch of time. And I think it was only two and a half hours. Um, and he was like, well, just edit while you're up at night. <laughs> yeah, because that works. I'll just strap her, strap her to yeah. my back. And you, 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 need, you need to seriously outsource. <laughs> I only yeah. say that because I'm challenging myself because I'm, I'm starting to outsource a lot more at the moment as well. But all those little tasks that take far too much time, it's like, oh, just give them to someone else. <laughs> For sure. I know it is yeah. on my list of things to, to spec out in the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah. So at any rate, I digress. That is, that is my, my own little journey. So as you work with your clients um, through a variety, it sounds like you kind of span a variety of different marketing challenges that they might be needing addressed. Um, What, is there anything that is kind of consistent between all of them that you hear time and time again in terms of like what they're struggling with? And if there is, is there like a piece of advice that as a marketing coach, it's like your go-to and that's going to be the first thing you say to anybody that you work with? Oh, wow. Yeah. There's so much I could dig into here. Um, I think I think there's two things that I find consistent across everyone. Uh, actually, there's many, many things. I'm going to just pick two though. The first is the ability for them to be able to tell their own story and or even just to value their own story. Uh, a lot of times as, as uh, marketers, as entrepreneurs, uh, we spend a lot of time going, okay, we're going to perfect our little pitch. So we get our little pitch there and we talk about what we do and who we do it for and what the outcome will be. Um, but that in itself misses a core element, which is what's in it for the customer. In other words, why should anyone listening to your pitch even care about what you're saying? Why should they even pay attention to this? Um, so I teach them a, a kind of modified version of the bridge technique where you go, okay, uh, first of all, you look at who you serve and what their need is. But your goal of any pitch in any story is to do two things. One, it is to get them to kind of come to the conclusion of where they're at themselves. So they need to mentally uh, realize uh, the frustration or the need or the gap they have in their life. And a good example of this is when I had Common Ledger, we sat down with, um, we'd go meet with senior partners at accounting firms and explain what we do and things. But I remember they pawned us off to a couple of the juniors and one of them sitting there and I said, okay, well, talk me through, what's the process you go through when you have to get data from each of your clients? And he goes, oh, it's really easy. And I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that's not what I'd heard, but oh, well, he goes, no, it's, it's, it's really simple. But it's, it's really quick as well. I just got to get the data from them. And then I put it into our system and then it's, and it's in our ledger. And I go, okay, well, talk me through, you know, how do you go and get the data? And he goes, oh, well, well, actually, that's a bit of a pain. I, I Often I have to go out and drive and see them because they're not using cloud-based software. So I've got to go out there with a thumb drive or a, sometimes we burn it to a disk. Oh, that's a real pain. And then, yeah, but I've got to get, get out there, then come back. And then when I come back, actually, it's really frustrating because it's never in the chart of accounts that we want. So I have to go through and map that through to ours and it never matches what it was before. And I, so by the time we had finished, he, he had come to the conclusion himself that this was a really frustrating system and that it takes two hours to do each of these, the, the, this action for one client. And then I'm going, okay, well, 
imagine so this is him picturing his current state and then my job now is to paint the future state where that need that gap is no longer there and i said okay well imagine being able to just have access to that data at all times like it would take literally 20 seconds once you click refresh and that data is pumped into your system even if they're using desktop-based solutions and immediately he's gone from picturing and feeling the pain because he came to that conclusion himself. So he's feeling that immediately and then picturing a world where that doesn't exist. And he's like, oh, and he feels that kind of relaxed guy. Yeah. And then when you've done that and you're the one that's there standing in front of them, you are immediately the bridge between those two states. So it became a no brainer for him to go, do you enable that to happen? Yeah, I want in. So as a marketer, we need to be able to be able to tell that story, be able to tell the pitch. But the other aspect of storytelling, which is really, really powerful, is um, I talk about this concept of the neural connection. So we are hardwired as human beings to receive stories. I mean, long before the internet and paper and chisel and rock or however we used to communicate cave drawings and all this, stories were the way that we shared information. It was the way that we taught people. It was the way that we explained history. It's the way that we, all of it was from stories, you know, sitting around a fire. I'm picturing cave people here. I don't know. Sitting around a fire and saber-toothed tigers are everywhere, all those movies. Um, but it's the way that we kind of share this information. So our brains are actually hardwired to receive stories. So when you're hearing a story, your brain is more active. Your brain is more engaged. And then it does something else there as well, which it puts you in the story. So you're actually picturing yourself in amidst the story. So when they, when someone's telling you a story, the emotional highs and the lows they go on, you feel those. So you're engaged with this very, very heavily. So your brain's really receptive to it. So stories are a really effective way for you to be able to uh, connect with your potential clients. And then the other aspect of it is if you can craft that story in such a way that you do that pitch that I talked about where you show that you get them to come to the conclusion of the need and show them that preferred future, and in amongst that, you show some form of vulnerability. And by that, that could be as simple as, look, I remember when I was a child, I used to go to the movies with my father, and that was a time that brought us together and connected us. Immediately, when you're telling something like that, in the listener's brain, they have this whole concept of a, a reptilian brain or a crocodile brain. It's your defense mechanisms. And your brain just suddenly looks at them and goes, hang on a minute, they've just shared something vulnerable. They've shared something personal to them that must mean this is a safe space. So your brain just goes, okay, crocodile brain, a reptilian brain, I don't need you right now. You go, you go and hang out in the corner, grab a cup of coffee, I don't know, have a nana nap, whatever you want to do. We don't need you right now. This is a safe space. So as well as being able to be more receptive to the story, we're also more trusting of that story as well. So that's one of the, one of the two key things that I, I have to teach over and over again to entrepreneurs is how to craft that story. Um, the second thing is often the lack of belief in themselves. And that comes from things like fear of being seen. So for a lot of us, and I think every entrepreneur is gonna feel this as soon as I say it, because most of us are in the same position. Uh, we often worry about putting ourselves out there. We worry about putting our content out there because we may be judged. And and often, the funny thing is, often it's being, this, being scared of being judged by those around us. So for example, when I left Cigna, I'm like, right, I, I had a lot of wins at Cigna. I was well regarded there. I'm, you know, I achieved a lot in my time there. But the second I realized I was getting into coaching, I was a little bit worried about talking about that because I thought, well, what, what are the other C-suite executives there going to think? Are they going to go, oh, Vince thinks he's a coach now. Oh my goodness. Or he thinks this. In reality, I don't care. 
Like we shouldn't care what those people, they're not your target market. There are people out there that genuinely are waiting for you to show up and waiting for you to meet their needs and waiting for you to help them. They are the ones that we should be focused on. So one of the things I have to teach people is to understand their why, understand who it is they're serving and just to try and focus on that. So things like imposter syndrome, self-doubt, all the things that plague us as entrepreneurs and plague all of us as entrepreneurs, they don't have a hold on us. So I, so I guess those are probably the two biggest things I have to consistently teach everyone that I coach and everyone through my programs. Yeah, I. it's funny that you talk about um, your like imposter syndrome or kind of caring about like what your former colleagues thought because it's something that like, I mean, I'm only a year removed from my corporate job and where I was there, I was with those people for almost nine years. Yeah. And, and I have the same thought like on a daily basis. I'm just like, oh my gosh. And, and a lot of them have been like very supportive and have had like such kind words to say, but then there's, and part of it comes just from like, I, for better or for worse, like I know some of the people Yeah. and I know like, I know the gossip and like the, yeah. the remarks and things that like come from anytime somebody like leaves an organization. And so I'm always, I am always paranoid about, or not paranoid, but I'm always like self-conscious about, yeah. you know, what are they going to say? And like, are, are they gossiping? And like, in reality, like you said, in reality, it doesn't even matter. And like, they're not my yeah. target market. Who cares if they think what I'm doing is silly yeah. or beyond my capability is like, I know it's not. Exactly. Uh, well, but- it's, it's an interesting one as well, isn't it? Because it, like the thing, the thing is the, their positioning, like if you look at where things like that gossip or people talking about you and things like that, where that comes from, it comes from one of two places. Because in reality, we, we're, we're often projecting what we think they're going to say and think. Uh, nine times out of 10, most people don't think about us. <laughs> they don't talk about us. As much as I'd like to think that everybody talks about me because I'm so wonderful. The reality is very few people do. But those that do, that if they ask this negative speak, if they are in this judgmental space, it comes from one of two places. It either comes from their own insecurity, in which case they possibly weren't even a real friend of yours anyway, or really someone you should care what they think. They've got their own stuff to deal with. They're, they're as insecure as you are. They're as fearful as you are. They are, you know, like imposter syndrome has got its claws into them just as much as it does you. Or they're coming from, and this happens a lot with friends and family, they're coming from a position of trying to protect you. And by that, I mean, they look and they go, oh, you know, Catelyn's trying to do something different. Like she's putting out a podcast. My goodness, who does she think she is a podcaster? But that's because they can't see where you're heading. They can't see what you're trying to build. So they don't know that it works. So they're just going, I want to protect them from failure. I want to protect them from making a fool of themselves. But the reality is, you know, because it's your vision, you know that you've got this and you know that you can achieve this. They don't know that yet. So it's a case of going, okay, look, I appreciate you looking out for me. I appreciate you trying to protect me and worrying that I'm going to make a fool of myself. But you know what? I'm actually really good at this. I know what I'm doing and I can achieve it. So, so it's really interesting when you kind of take a step back and look at why that behavior is. But to be honest, nine times out of 10, they're not talking about you. They're not thinking about you. It's only our own fears and insecurities. Yeah, no, totally, for sure. And I saw a quote um, a while back that I, I wrote down and it said, I used to care about other people's opinions until I tried to pay my bills with them. And I was like, <laughs> there we go. Like yep. that's, that's the like stance I have to, to take a little bit. 
Love it. Yeah. But it's just interesting to hear the commonalities between, you know, even, even us as coaches and the people that we coach, like we're all, we're not really that different from each other. Oh, no. Well, if you, if you think about imposter syndrome for a second, well, we, we should actually call it what it's supposed to be called, which is imposter complex, because it's not technically a syndrome, but everyone knows it is imposter syndrome. But if you look at the stats around that, um, I think the latest stats were around 72% of everybody. So regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of everything, 72% of everyone have encountered or had to deal with imposter syndrome at some point in their life. Now, if you filter all of that data by entrepreneurs, then that number skyrockets. Like, honestly, unless you're a sociopathic entrepreneur, you probably battle with this on a regular basis because technically, and this is a hard thing for us to get our heads around, technically we are imposters because we're basically, we're operating doing something that we've never achieved before, that we've never done before. So we're making this up as we go along and that's actually okay. There is nothing wrong with that. So we're stepping into the space of the unknown and that imposter syndrome is trying to say, whoa, 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 calm down, back off. This is scary because you don't know what you're doing here. No, but I kind of do as well. And I know enough to know that I can, as long as I'm a few steps ahead of the people that I'm helping, then it's a good thing. So, so often we just need to recognize for what it is. In fact, I, I tell people it's a bit controversial, but I say, look, embrace imposter syndrome. Like seriously, just, just own it. I mean, like, if you know that you're feeling imposter syndrome, it's because you're out of your comfort zone. Well, guess what? Nothing was ever achieved in your comfort zone. Why not just embrace that and go, if I'm feeling this, if I'm feeling this insecurity, it's because I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm doing something that's challenging, and it means I'm going to get breakthrough. But also, if you embrace imposter syndrome, it, it's an interesting concept to know that other people, in fact, every other entrepreneur, is feeling the same insecurities as you. Because that means one thing, you've got as much right to be there as everybody else. Like when you look around, say you're at a board meeting or say you're at an executive team and you look around that room and realize that just about everybody there is as insecure as you. They're just really good at hiding it, by the way. But if they're as insecure as you, you've got as much right to be there as them. So when you embrace imposter syndrome, when you embrace that concept, then you can stand confidently in. It's kind of counterintuitive considering what you're dealing with, but you can stand confidently and go, you know what? Damn it, I've got this. Yeah, I, I, I like that approach a lot. And I heard to a gal, I was in a coaching session um, and the mentor for our group brought in a gal who recently wrote a book. Her name is Robin Conley Downs and it's called The Feel Good Effect. And we were talking about imposter syndrome that day. It was a group of all women entrepreneurs. And yeah. she said very, something very similar and kind of, um, her, her spin on it was when you're feeling that imposter syndrome, you're outside of your comfort zone and you have to recognize that like you are bringing new, unique, necessary perspective to yeah. whatever, whatever thing it is you're coming into. Like, I love that. so, you know, you, yeah, you're, you're outside of your comfort zone, but like you have something new to add to that conversation. Yeah. So hundred percent. And, and this goes down to the core of being an entrepreneur as well, because, a lot of entrepreneurs kind of feel like, say, for example, I don't know, say you're setting up a donut shop, right? You're setting up a donut shop. Immediately, you think to yourself, well, there's a hundred other donut shops in the city. So I'm one of a hundred different donut shops. That's not true. You're actually one of one. Because the reality is every single donut shop has its own owner, has its own visionary, has its own way of doing things. But you're the only person that has your experiences, 
your knowledge, your personality, your quirkiness, your weirdness, all the different things that make you so uniquely you, the, the scars that you've borne throughout the years, you know, all the things that you've had to deal with, all of those make you so unique that whatever you're building, even if it's a donut shop, and there are hundreds of them, it is still a donut shop that is very different and very you. You've got something different to add to that. So I, I just love this concept. And and honestly, when, when entrepreneurs grasp this, this is one of the things I love about coaching. You just see them step into something completely new. It's like, yeah, there's like a new power, a new energy, new motivation to keep pushing forward. So it's, it's wonderful stuff. It is. Um, okay, we could probably talk all night about imposter syndrome. <laughs> of course we could. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. shifting gears a little bit. So yeah. you you regularly speak about how small businesses and entrepreneurs can attract more clients with less effort, which as an entrepreneur sounds beautiful. Like, yes, <laughs> tell me more. I want to know everything about that. So what are your favorite strategies for those entrepreneurs who are just starting out or any entrepreneur really to use to, to accomplish that? Sure. Well, yeah. One, one of the things I, I've seen, and I've, don't worry, I've been there. I've learned from my own mistakes on this one. One of the, the things I've seen with entrepreneurs is we often, we run with a vision. So we'll go, okay, for example, I'm going to build a widget, right? And I know that this widget's going to be incredible and everyone's going to want it. So I go out there, I build this widget and then I have to market it to people. And then that becomes an uphill battle because I then have to explain to them what it does. I have to you know, go through that whole bridge method like you talked about of going, okay, picture the point of pain. You're missing this widget in your life and imagine a world where this widget is in your life and all this kind of thing. So we kind of build it and then try and retrofit it to whatever their life or need is. Well, one of the things I learned the hard way was actually the best thing to do is to build it with your customers. And by that, I mean, you need to have them at every stage. In fact, a good example of this was we were, we were building Common Ledger. So we're building this, um, it's kind of hard to explain if you're not an accountant, but it's essentially, it was a way to make all of the different accounting software talk nicely to each other, even the desktop stuff. So it made accountants' lives easier. So we assumed very early on when we started building this that the, the thing that was most valuable to uh, accountants was the fact that they would have the data readily available. But then we got in front of as many as accountants as possible. So I would meet with every accounting firm that would give me the time of day. Um, I would even, I, I learned a lot of sales techniques, by the way, of just getting past the gatekeeper, like literally ringing up an accounting firm, the receptionist goes, can I help you? And I go, yeah, look, is Brian there or is he running out to lunch? She goes, oh, no, no, he's still in the office. You go, oh, phew, thought I'd miss him. Can you put me through? And she goes, sure. And you can almost hear as she transfers the phone, her going, wait a minute. <laughs> and then, then suddenly I'm introducing myself to Brian and saying, look, I'll shout your beer. If you just give me five minutes of your time, I just need to pick your brains. And he's like, yeah, sure. Um, but the more I got in front of our target market, the more I realized the thing that was most valuable for them was the thing we hadn't even thought of. Um, and it was, it was sitting in a, um, a, what I call a smoke and mirrors demo. Uh, so we had built this platform. I got to, um, I'm almost embarrassed to say the firm because they may listen to this podcast and they'd be like, oh no, <laughs> and they realized they were tricked. But I got to meet with the senior partners at uh, Price Waterhouse, so PwC. And uh, we had, uh, we were in here in New Zealand. We had uh, partners from South Africa and all over the world dialing into this thing. And I was doing a live demo to all of them. 15 minutes before we, we were to start, I get there early to make sure I get a cup of coffee, breathing exercises, this is a big deal. It's gonna be a huge sales thing, you know. Um, I go to check the app and it ain't working. 
Yeah, it's gone down. And I ring my co-founder. I'm like, dude, what's going on? I can't access it. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've just rebooted the server. It's all right. It'll be back up and running in a couple of hours. I'm like, dude, I'm meeting with PwC. And he goes, yeah. Oh, that's right. And I'm like, oh, no. So I'm like, what do I do? Now, fortunately, I had just taken screenshots of every aspect of our app. And they were all on my laptop. So I just went, quickly put together a PowerPoint, put all the screenshots in there as though they were like a website. And I just pretended that I was doing a live demo with this PowerPoint. I was just <laughs> clicking through, pretending to click on the different items and things. And it was just going to the next slide. Uh, and they were none the wiser, by the way. But the interesting thing was the comments at the end. So they, you know, they, we'd, I'd done the demo and everything. And one of them turned around and he said, this is interesting. Uh, he wasn't completely sold. You could tell. And he goes, but I've got a question for you. Does this automatically map the chart, chart of accounts? Because if it did that, that is a game changer. So I quickly pivoted and just said funny enough we're just testing that at the moment and he goes he just looked at me all excited and went i want in and everyone's like oh 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 so i had assumed we knew what the value to them was they gave us the value back so i i, I honestly i left that meeting i rang my co-founder i said still not talking to you i'm really grumpy with you right now but you've got one chance to save face can we automate the mapping of the chart of accounts <laughs> he goes by the time you get back here, I would have figured it out. And I said, great. So we, we set up a smoke and mirrors of that as well. They would literally upload the chart of accounts file. And then we would uh, we'd say to them, you know, it takes a little while for it to compute. And then it does it automatically in the background for you. That automatically was an intern that we hired who used to work through the night and map them manually and then okay. send it back to them. But we pretend it was automatic. And then that would train our system. So, But the key thing on this is, the quicker and the faster and the more regularly and the more consistently you get in front of your customers, the less you have to market this thing. So one of the things I encourage people, um, I created this concept called coffee line tests. And I talk about this quite a bit. This was an epiphany that I had, uh, an embarrassing epiphany, if I'm honest, because uh, when I, a previous company before Common Ledger, I was creating this mobile app and I knew I needed to validate this. So I thought, right, I've got this. This is going to be easy. We had to build this. We wanted to build this company in a weekend. So we said, right. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get some validation that people are going to use this app, that they're going to pop by the microtransactions in there. So I grabbed a clipboard and some paper. I grabbed a pen and I hit the streets and I was interrupting consumers to ask them their opinion on a few things. Uh, I very quickly discovered that when you're interrupting people on the street, they're going from point A to point B. Uh, they don't like being interrupted. I also discovered that when you have a clipboard in your hand and you're asking people for something, they think you're one of two things, either a crazy street preacher or you're asking for donations to the Red Cross or something. So nobody's interested. And also I learned some really colorful language because that's what they were all yelling at me. So I felt really deflated and I thought, this is, uh, this is crazy. Uh, so I went and got myself a coffee. So I went to this cafe and I'm standing in this line at the cafe and I'm thinking to myself, this didn't work. I really need to find somewhere where there's a captive audience, somewhere where people aren't going somewhere where they're kind of stuck and in exchange for something I could... And while I'm thinking that, I'm going, oh, man, I wish it would hurry up. I've been stuck here for five minutes. And then ding, ding, ding. I'm like, hang on. So I tried something. I bought another cup of coffee. I went, went in line and I said to the people behind me, hey, look, if I pay for your coffee, can you just give me a couple of minutes of your time while we're waiting for it? Um, I just need to get your opinion on things. 100% success rate. Everybody was not only keen to get a free coffee, but they were really, they, like, they felt valuable. They felt important being able to give you their opinion. So then I started realizing, okay, there's something to this. We, we then, uh, I learned some techniques. You go to the cafe, you talk to the manager there. You say, I'm going to put my credit card on the counter. I've got a coworker here with me. They're going to uh, basically take the orders for everybody. So they'll stand in line and take the orders while they come over and give their time to me and I'll record it. 
And what that does is it does two things. It validates your, uh, what you're trying to build. You get direct feedback from your target market. But then the last thing, which is really, really important, is because you're recording this, they give you all of the language you need to be able to market back to them. And by that, uh, I'll give you a good example. So I'm a marketing coach. Uh, I help businesses to market themselves and differentiate themselves. One of the aspects of that, obviously, is search engine optimization. And I remember talking with one of my clients, and as these two old women, and I was talking to them and I said, look, um, here's the problem you've got is, you know, you've got a search engine optimization issue. So I want to do an SEO audit, and then I'll come up with a strategy to, to up your page ranks and get you found on Google. And they were like, whoa, 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 we, we don't care about any of that. I was like, well, we just want to be found on Google. Like, you know, we're not there. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm using all these, this language that I know because I'm a marketer. I'm using all these terms that I assumed everybody knew. So then I said, okay, well, how about this? You're not being found on Google. I'm going to find out why. And then I'm going to get you help, help you get found on Google. They went, that's what we want. So I used their language back on them. So doing coffee line tests is such a valuable way of cutting out all the hard work you don't have to come up and test all these different messaging and everything. They directly give it to you. Uh, and if you're in the B2B space, there are ways to hack that as well. We did that with Common Ledger. We would literally go to conferences. We went to ZeroCon in Melbourne. And instead of paying $10,000 for a booth, where you then had to try and draw people to you and give you their contact details and everything, I went, screw that. Here's an iPad each. Let's create a survey, seven questions. And let's walk the lunch line and say, look, do you want to win a bottle of whiskey? help me fill out the survey. So you're not, they don't feel like you're selling to them. You're just asking them a bunch of questions. Everyone's captive anyway. So they're like, yeah, sure. To win a bottle of whiskey. By the way, accountants love to drink, I've discovered. So <laughs> whiskey was a really good motivator. Um, but you, you, yeah, you would walk this lunch line. And the thing that we would do, would you would use this to kind of filter each of the people you're talking to. So you get a whole pile of valuable information from them. You get the verbatims of how they explain their issues and their problems you would strike up this conversation and, and you'd generate leads from that. But also all of those questions, when you're going through 300 different accountants at a conference and you're getting seven questions answered, every one of those questions becomes a press release because every one of those is inside into the accounting industry and statistically significant when you're around 300, 350-ish people. So this proved to be incredibly valuable uh, and we would get hundreds of leads. We would literally, because I, I would get them to explain, I say, look, with all the different accounting software that's out there, what's the biggest challenge for you? And they would go, oh my goodness. Again, they're picturing their scenario, their, their pain. And then I said to them, well, what would be a solution that would help you with that? Like in just in conversation. And they said, oh man, I just want something that makes it all work together nicely. And I went, well, we're literally beta testing that right now. And they would beg you to be a part of a beta test. So you would get clients, you wouldn't have to market to them. You wouldn't have to sell to them. You would get them begging you to try and be part of your program or part of your beta so that's the, that's the kind of concept I teach is get in front of your customers as much as possible and your potential customers as much and as often as possible and get that hard work out the way because they will give you all of the ways you can market to them. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I That was advice when I started building my business and I worked with my business coach. He was also a marketer and yeah. that was the first thing, you know, and I, and I know I know market research is a good thing, right? Like I was doing it all the time in the corporate world and yeah. was, you need to go do that with the people you want to serve. And it's funny, you know, he was like, you, we had two weeks in between our calls and he was like, that's going to be your assignment for two weeks. And um, I had gone into that initial call kind of like with a vision of what my business was going to be and what I was going <laughs> to offer. And 
came back two weeks later with a totally different, you know, a setup similar to what I have today. And, and basically it was, you know, I had envisioned sort of taking on and doing the marketing for people, which I think subconsciously I knew like, wasn't realistic, you know, to be like a one woman marketing show. Um, but I had gone and I had talked to a handful of, um, shop owners that own, um, kind of the strip of shops in our little downtown area. And, um, two of them said at the same time, they were like, well, I just, you know, I can't, pay or I think I asked them like how much they would pay to have somebody do something like that and um the one lady was like uh I would probably pay like $200 a month to have someone do all of my marketing she was like which I'm pretty sure is not what you're willing to do it (laughs) and then the other lady was like you know I I would pay a little bit more she's like but in all honesty, if you could just teach me how to do some solid marketing, I would, she was like, I would pay the same amount for that. And that was kind of like that aha moment. And, you know, as I kind of went and tested that idea going forward, so many more people were like, oh yes, I would, I would do that. Like I can't afford to pay you to do all the marketing because that sounds really expensive and it probably would have been, but they were willing to learn and kind of, you know, take some mini courses on, email marketing or social media or whatever it was so i love that it's such a it's such a weirdly counterintuitive thing i I honestly think marketers are our own worst enemy sometimes in fact there's something i'm determined to kind of crush in the industry is we as marketers we often try and make things overly complex and the only reason we do that is because we're insecure and we're like well if we can make things really complex then we will seem really important and everyone will be going oh they must be a genius Um, but in reality marketing is not that hard it's just understanding the needs of your client, getting them to picture that preferred future, and then talking to them in a way where they understand that. Um, so we kind of fear that if we enable customers, if we enable businesses to be able to do that, then they won't need us. But the reality is they will want us even more. Like the more you can empower a company and teach them marketing, the more they will want to know, the more wins they get on board, by the way, the more money they make. So the more they're willing to shell out for you to teach them even more. It just, it's really counterintuitive, but it's incredibly powerful. So we, we've got to let go a lot more and we've got to let go of our egos and let go of our insecurities and go, ah, it's okay to teach. It's okay to empower. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's just, it creates this nice little, like my, my goal going in is if I can, if I can work with you once, yeah. like that's good enough for me. Like, that's what I want. I want to be able to empower you and and you, yeah. and if you come back, that's, that's awesome. You know? And like you said, there's, there's always, you know, it kind of creates that cycle of yeah. more information and more information, which I think is, is really smart. Um, yeah. So you also, you have your book called Chasing Insights, and it's a practical guide to an experimental approach to digital marketing. Yep. That's quite a so, mouthful, I realized. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I know I'm reading it. I was like, yeah. printing, like my light glare is on it. And I was yeah, like, yeah. that's right. Um, but first, okay. So before we dive into your book, first, let's talk about why specifically folk focus on digital marketing versus any other type of marketing? I know my answer. I know why I would recommend it. <laughs> what's yeah. yours? Setting me up here. I love it. Um, <laughs> look, yeah, yeah, I'm not against traditional marketing as well, by the way, but just 
One of the things that I've learned is uh, digital marketing gives you two advantages over um, traditional marketing, like brand marketing, things like that, uh, which are vitally important for every business as well. But the two things I love about digital is one, it is scalable a lot more than the traditional marketing. You can get in front of and, and get really granular about your target market. You can get directly down to like interests, sub-interests, weird little niche interests, all these different things. You can get in front of the right audience on a much larger scale because all the information is there. But the other aspect I really like about digital is it's totally measurable. Um, and it's one of the challenges I always faced um, when we were doing campaigns, particularly if we're doing TV, we would have to do attribution modeling. So uh, often, you know, they would tell us as how many people were watching a specific show. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to call BS on that because I know what I do when I watch TV shows. The second the ads come on, I'm going to the loo, I'm making a coffee, I'm grabbing a beer, I'm doing whatever. I'm not paying attention to that. So just because it's there doesn't mean they're paying attention to it at all. So they would build out these attribution models and some of them are really, really powerful um, data modeling, you know, where they go, okay, well, based on this three days later, they searched for, or, you know, a particular person searched for your company and then they saw you on social media. So therefore we can attribute X percentage of that overall budget to TV and blah, blah, blah. Except the more you, and, you know, particularly for a data guy like myself, you know, um, the more you drill down on those attribution modeling, the more you realize it's just guesswork. It really is. There is some science behind it, yes. But the, as soon as you start to pick it apart, the science falls apart. And uh, a great example of this was, um, you know, we have one of the top attribution modeling companies in New Zealand. In fact, probably in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, working on some modeling for us when I was at Sigma. And uh, these are super smart guys. I've got a lot of respect for them. I love the company. I love the people there. But they came back with this model and they said, look, you know, based on this, we've discovered that just about everyone that converts at some point has seen your ads on a specific website that we have here. I won't name them, um, but on a specific website. So just about everybody saw you on there. So therefore, our recommendation is to invest more money on that site. And I'm going, well, all of this in theory sounds fantastic, except in practice falls apart. And they go, what do you mean? And I said, well, what is the biggest criticism we have of that specific website, which is why I'm not naming it. Um, what's the biggest criticism we have is they use these, um, like, because on websites, if you're not familiar, I know you are, but if the listeners aren't familiar, uh, you do things called pixel tracking. So in other words, there's a little pixel that loads on the page and that tells you that that person has seen your ad or, or that your ad is loaded on the page. The problem with that is this particular site was not a progressive load site. It would load that pixel in the header, even though the, the actual ad itself was now down by the footer. And we knew for a fact that the majority of people would never scroll past halfway, yeah. which meant that we were being told that our ads were being seen, but the reality was they weren't. So we really annoyed this attribution modeling company. Uh, we ran a, a thing called uh, Smokey the Bear Test. So basically what we did was we did an experiment on running somebody else's ads in our place so ad for a charity in our place so we paid for the advertising we put it in there they just didn't realize you know that these ads weren't even for us and they came back and said you know originally we had say a 16 percent attribution on that website and then suddenly we have a nine percent attribution and we're going okay so the true attribution is actually 16 minus nine which is seven percent and they're like ouch so so this is why i love digital, pure digital, because everything is 
measurable. Everything is trackable. We can track what people do on our website. We can track what people do when they click on our ads. We can track what they do when they engage with us on social media. So I love that fact because it gives us so much information and so many insights that we can take through into our other marketing as well. Yeah. I Before, before I give you my thoughts on that, you would have gotten along famously with my former boss, the CMO of the organization I was at, his favorite thing to do was to pick apart the like data <laughs> models that like our vendors gave us and be like, no, yep. no, 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 let me show you. I like, he spent, he spent a year working on, um, a kind of disproving some of the like information that one of our biggest vendors gave. It was nice. like a pet project and it, yeah. you, know, you two would have you two had hit it yeah. off in that we, I, I still remember when I started at Cigna, um, there was an agency that we were using at the time. And um, when I started there, and I had worked with them and another organization, they were one of our vendors. And I came into the room, they walked in and went, oh, crap. <laughs> I'm like, hey, how are you doing? Um, look, even Janet, okay, so programmatic is a good example of this. Um, and this is what I talk about when I'm saying I like to smash a lot of the paradigms in this industry and a lot of the, a lot of the BS and a lot of the rubbish. Um, and programmatic was a good example of this, where we were spending a large amount of money on programmatic advertising. So this is display advertising that you do, you know, bid tracking through um, big auction sites and things. So we would spend a lot of money on these display ads and we would get very little return on investment. Like the attribution modeling was showing that it was contributing overall. Um, but I had my theories on that and I said, you know what, we're just going to turn off all programmatic for three months. That's what we're going to do. We're going to kill it. We're going to spend not a single cent on that. And that caused a frenzy in the agencies where they were like, whoa, 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 Signal are doing this. Hold on, guys. No, 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 no. It's going to kill your bottom line. Like, seriously, it'll be after three months, you'll see all of your sales drop off. Um, we had the opposite. We were almost double our sales by the end of that because we were focused on where people would actually, where we would have their attention and where we would have their engagement. And I remember when I started at Signa, we, we, I think it was about... 2% of our overall sales might even be up to around the 4%. I can't remember now because it feels like forever ago. Time has lost all relevance. Um, but it was between 2 and 4% of our overall sales were done online. And that was because everybody thought this is life insurance that we're selling. This is something incredibly difficult that people have to navigate through. But it's also something that isn't bought. It's something that's sold. You need a person in front of them, over, either over the phone or face-to-face, -face, talking through all the different options. And I said, well, what if that's not true? What if we can create an experience where people would feel empowered all the way through, where they would feel like they're in control and they feel like this is really easy. We'd explain everything as we go through. We'd make it super simple for them. Uh, everyone, everyone told me I was mad, told my team they were mad, um, thought they would never work. When I left Cigna, our online contributed to 43% of our overall sales. And by the way, we had doubled the overall revenue already. So the, these theories are you know, great in practice, but once you scratch the surface a little bit, you can see through them very, very quickly. So I, I honestly, I want to meet that CMO. <laughs> Already know we're going to go out for a beer and if we can even meet face to face, <laughs> especially in a coronavirus world right now, that's almost impossible. But yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you all, you all are a little bit luckier. Sounds like in New Zealand than uh... luckier to a degree. We we can meet face to face over here, which is wonderful. In fact, um, I had my birthday recently, so I got to go out to dinner with my family. It was amazing. But we also really want to travel. Most of my clients are in the US, Canada, UK, and Australia. Um, and I'm, I'm unable to see any of them because even if we could get in, like say for example, Australia, 
even if we could fly over there, which we can technically, I can get into Australia, but then the wait list to get in here with managed isolation is months. So if I was to fly over for a weekend, I would be out of action for about two or three months, which is crazy. Wow. So travel's out of out of bounds at the moment, which is depressing. Yeah. 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 Well, if it, um, to kind of contrast your world, I mean, I would kind of like give anything for that. So my mom is very high risk. Um, she just has a, several health conditions. And so it's been almost a year wow. since we've spent any time like indoors with her or obviously my dad as well um and just this past so a couple weeks ago she got her first dose of her vaccine and this past weekend was the first time I mean we still my everybody in our house wore masks and we still kind of made our kids you know keep our distance and things like that but it was the first time in almost a year that we've even like let my mom come in our house and like see our kids in our house because we've just you know nobody really knows obviously like if yeah. since they're they're um less likely to be symptomatic we've just been yeah. super ultra cautious so yeah no, i'm i'm very like, go out to yeah. dinner with her, yeah. you know? <laughs> exactly i'm very i'm very conscious that you know like these are very first world problems oh, uh, yeah. yeah i want to get i want to get back to tokyo but can't get there oh no poor me <laughs> considering people aren't getting to see loved ones and family and friends and everything so um yeah i'm very very aware i'm quite selfish at the moment no, <laughs> my problems are pretty tiny uh, yeah. no no i don't mean to make you feel bad i just like, it's such a it's it's such a oh no i should feel bad <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we've talked uh, about becoming expats like, yeah half jokingly half jokingly we'll, <laughs> we'll give it four more years we get a new president tomorrow so we'll... yes i know <laughs> exciting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. fingers crossed so <laughs> i i think listening to kind of your story about digital marketing and i think digital marketing for entrepreneurs is just a really um wise investment starting out because yeah. it so measurable and you can see where your money is going and it kind of gives you the confidence to say, okay, let me try maybe some of these other avenues as well. And and you and I talked about this before too on our pre-call, like really the best success is a a well-rounded marketing plan. It's not going all in on like one specific anyway, but digital marketing really because of that measurability kind of, like I said, gives, gives you confidence. And I, as I was as I was um, scouring your LinkedIn profile, kind of learning and prepping for- (laughs) for, Stalking, we call it, yeah. (laughs) That's what I was looking for. Um, Your book, Chasing the Insights, I feel like really kind of that title comes out of, I think, and maybe I'm drawing my own conclusions because it makes for a good interview, I don't know. chasing the insights, you say, you know, like you, let me scroll down. So I don't get this, this quote wrong. We don't chase, um, we don't chase the wins. We chase the insights. Yes. And I feel like that's a really very seamless tie into digital marketing and marketing in general, because when you're starting out, or even if you are, um, a little bit more of an established small business, like no, no truer sentiment. It's a really like brilliant sentiment for marketing in general, because you, 
that's really all you're doing with marketing. You are not, there's no silver bullet. There's no, you know, there's no measure of like certainty. There's, you can, you can have some degree of it, but you can't say like unequivocally, like, I know this is going to work and these are the results you're going to get and things like that. If we could, I think marketers would all be living on an Island, like (laughs) running the world somewhere because we'd be like, super amazing at everything we could get into yeah. then. Um, so talk a little bit about just that philosophy and the, the title of that book and kind of how you came to that. Cause I just think it's, sure. I just think it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, the book itself is based on um, what I call a necessity. So when I, when I create a common ledger, one of the things we determined was we knew there was going to be six months of absolutely no income because we were building a high growth tech startup. Um, but we knew we had, we plotted out a roadmap of saying for six months, we're going to be building this up. So we're getting customers on board. We would develop this, but also we had to work towards a seed round. So we wanted to raise some investment. So we knew that that six month mark was the key date. So we're like, right, we have no money. I'm like, literally we can't pay ourselves, but we're doing this full time, which means we're churning through our savings, um, which meant any budget that we had towards marketing was self-funded. We were bootstrapping the whole thing. So we had to be incredibly efficient with our spend, which meant we couldn't just go, oh, let's just throw everything at Facebook advertising or let's do a LinkedIn campaign or let's do a big PR blitz or anything like that. We had to almost prove that it was going to work first. So I came up with this concept of like the minimum viable test. So we wanted, we would have a hypothesis. So my hypothesis was if we were entering a new market, we would need, you know, a month before we would need to start to sow the seeds of PR and to the best way to do that rather than pay a PR company was to come up with these uh, almost insights into the industry uh, that were interesting or valuable to, to different um, you know, journalists and reporters. So we would test that and we would constantly be testing all these different things for as low cost as possible uh, and then seeing if they worked. And if they do, we'd look at if we can scale them. So I thought that was a great way to do things. But then I started realizing that um, I would get... Uh, I don't know how to word it, probably afraid, actually. I would I would put a test out there. I would spend money on it. And then I'd start to freak out if it wasn't getting the results I wanted. And I would prematurely pull it, even though I knew that this had the potential of doing something really, really good. Uh, and that was because my mindset was all about, I need the win. I need to make sure that this is going to convert. I need to make sure it wins. And then I realized that a lot of the failed experiments that we had tried, that was where the gold actually was. Because in those failed experiments, we learned so much about how far we could push certain things. We learned what worked and what didn't work with customers. We learned that, you know, what channels and what things they actually pay attention to. So I started realizing if I'm going to succeed in bringing experimentation in, and particularly if I'm going to bring my co-founders and my staff on board, then they need to be bought into this. And the only way they're going to get that is if I teach them that there is no such thing as success slash failure, the natural fact it is proving or disproving a hypothesis both of those are wins so we look for the insights we don't chase the getting the big gain or getting the big results we look for learning as much as possible through every test that we do and then i brought that into uh, signal when i joined signal as well um i I realized very early on one of my one of my team uh is an amazing guy so incredibly creative but he was observing some of the lead generation campaigns that we were doing. And he came up with this hypothesis. He said to me, I've got a feeling this will work. And he noticed that there was a very altruistic bent to some of the campaigns that we were doing and they worked really well. So he wanted to take it to the extreme. He said, what if 
what if we had a competition, we had something where there was nothing in it for you. There was only something in it for other people. So you get to nominate charities, you get to nominate other people. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. I love the hypothesis. Let's test this. And we did a minimum viable test on it. And it, uh, by normal standards, would have been considered to be a failure. We generated not even enough leads. In all honesty, we didn't even generate enough leads to be able to give away the prizes. It was like, oh no, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this was an exciting opportunity for me. So I thought, this is great, man. Like we're we're disproving this hypothesis. We immediately know how far we can take this altruistic aspect to it. So therefore, we dialed it back and I said, what if we now add in, like, do a sub experiment on that and add in a what's in it for you? So now we're giving away grocery vouchers or, or cash or whatever else, you know, and see what happens. And we watched it spike up. So we learned so much through that. But I looked at his face and he was completely deflated. And I was like, hang on, I'm going to have to install this into these guys. And they need to learn that that was a success because we got insights from it. So, so that kind of set that up. That became my mantra with the team. It became what I kind of told everybody. The irony though about the book title, um, and this is very embarrassing to admit, so I created the, the experimental framework that's in there, right? Which is called the chaser method. Um, so it's a, a one, two, three, four, five, six, six step process to implement uh, proper experiments in marketing and to get those incremental gains. Then the second quarter of the uh, second third of the book is around the mindset stuff. So that's, we don't chase the wins, we chase the insights. Uh, it's cultivating curiosity. It's getting rid of cognitive bias, all the things that are really important when you're looking at experimentation. And then the last third was the practical experiments from myself and other leaders in digital marketing. So I'm like, man, this is, this is a solid book. It's the type of book I want to read. I poured a lot into it, but I called it beakers and binary because to me, that somehow summed up experimentation and digital marketing, you know, beakers, experimentation, binary, digital marketing. Um, and I was, uh, I was in San Francisco. There was, uh, I was getting recognized for an award and I went over there and the guy got up there and it was the, the Fearless 50 award. So Adobe and, and Marketo run this award where they recognize the top 50 marketers in the world. And the guy got up on stage and he's like, right, we've launched this program. We're recognizing the top 50, but we've only chosen the top 25. And I didn't even realize that I was one of those 25 and I'm sitting there and he, he said, right, these are the people. And I'm looking up on the screen going, holy crap. Uh, there was like 7,000 people at this conference. Uh, and then he goes, but I really want to highlight three of those to you that I think are really challenging the industry that are really contributing and, and, and making us think different. And the first of those is all the way from New Zealand. And I was like, wow, there's another Kiwi here. And I look up on screen and I was like, holy crap, he looks just like me. There was this giant headshot of me up there. And I'm like, whoa. And my brain just couldn't comprehend all of this. Like, seriously, it was really surreal. And then then the name came up and I was like, what? He's got the same name as me. Like my brain honestly had just left my head. and went, you're on your own, buddy. Yeah, but they, they, I finally clicked because this, this real kind of Californian dude beside me goes, dude, that's you. And I went, huh, yeah. And I felt really awkward and, and embarrassed and things. But the guy that got up there, the CEO, he was, he was talking about this program and he said, look, this guy here has really challenged the way that we approach digital marketing. He's brought in experimentation and he goes, and he, he's, he's writing this book at the moment. I know it's about to be launched in the next month. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but I remember one thing. Oh yeah, we don't chase the win, we chase the insights. Oh, chasing the insights, that must be the name of it. And I'm sitting there going, I've created the chaser method and my mantra is chasing, we don't chase the wins, we chase the insights. And I've called the book Beakers and Binary. What the hell is wrong with you, Vince? So I'm sitting on the front row of this conference, quickly jumping on my domain registry, grabbing chasingtheinsights.com as quickly as I could before anyone else could nab it. And then I was contacting my designer going, 
hey, you know how you design a cover for me? I'm changing the name of the book. <laughs> they were like, you, you idiot. <laughs> so yeah, very embarrassing, but it was one of those moments where it was right in front of me, in front of me and being a human being, I just missed it right, completely. Right. Someone else yeah. needed to point it out. <laughs> yeah, very, honestly, I was red-faced for the rest of the conference. Keep telling me, yeah, 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 it's called Chasing the Insights. Seriously, it is, it oh, is. No. Don't worry about anything else you see out there. <laughs> Does he know you re he renamed your book for you? I, I, I actually um, put a dedication to him in the book and <laughs> and reached out to him and said, dude, like, I'm, I'm so impressed. So it was awesome because he actually promoted my book um, through all of Marketo and Adobe and things as well, which which does help with sales, which I like. It does. <laughs> yeah. it does. Yeah. Those, are, those are huge companies. Um, yep. I, I think it's super cool that I even get to like talk to talk to someone who's who's accomplished that. So I like my marketing nerd think like <laughs> this podcast is going to scream marketing nerd by the, <laughs> by the oh don't worry i'll be doing the same when you're publishing your book so if you hurry up and publish your book i'll be i'll be nerding out with you okay <laughs> deal yeah. deal 10 minutes yep. 10 minutes a day eight minutes yep. eight minutes i can shave eight up minutes. it sounds there like you go. even better <laughs> um so just to kind of like wrap kind of put a put a nice neat little bow on on chasing the insights yeah. what is what is that framework just kind of kind of high level because i i sure. yes go for it tell us okay <laughs> well look uh, i knew this this mini test and uh, test and learn frameworks and experimentation frameworks out there so fully conscious this doesn't you know meet everybody's needs but what i needed to do was i'd found a pile of issues with just creating an experiment and running it and, and you've seen all these, you know, triangles with test, learn, repeat, test, learn, repeat, or test, learn, adapt, test, learn, adapt. And all of this is great, but it misses a few of the kind of key things. And I saw this over and over where people would run an experiment, they would get a result and they go, cool, park that over there. So, or they would start an experiment based on a random hypothesis and go, okay, I want to test this. And I'm like, really, is that what we should be working on right now? That doesn't make sense to me. So I started to build this framework around adding in these additional steps. So the C part of chasing the insights is the challenge. And that is because before you get to the H, which is a hypothesis, you need to clearly understand where your whole online journey is at, where your whole sales funnel is at, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever you want customers to do when they engage with you online, you need to understand what that looks like. And then you need to know where the gaps are in there. So for example, if you, know, you have no problem generating leads, but actually they're not converting or they're converting with a lead magnet and they're just not converting at the end, then you can look at doing your hypothesis where that highest need is. So let's look at that as a challenge. Let's create some hypothesis around that. And we have different ways that I explain how to do that in the book as well. Um, running the terrible names for things like power storm sessions. Yeah, I love cheesy, cheesy titles uh, or synergy sessions where you get all these people together to throw ideas up. There are no dumb ideas. By the way, there are really, really dumb ideas. But in the context <laughs> of this, there are none. You throw them up there because it starts this creative flow. So I wanted to add that in as a definitive step. Um, the other thing I wanted to add as a definitive step is the S part of Chaser, which is start. And it just is, it's because too many times I see people convince themselves out of running an experiment or to abandon an experiment because they're getting external pressures. And this happens far too often where we're investing in something and we don't see the return that we want and that we get in a panic mode and we're like, quick, pull the plug on that. But actually you're missing out on so much. You're missing out on all those insights that you would learn. You're missing out on the opportunity to be able to scale this to the next level as well. 
Uh, and then the other one I wanted to put in was the last, which is the R. And this is something that's missing from most frameworks as well, is I call it rollout um, because I had to find an acronym that worked and that was the only thing I could think of for R. But it really is, it is that moment where you've done your analysis, you've, you've drawn your conclusions and everything, and now you need to determine what to do next. And I wanted that as a definitive moment to stop, to pause, to take a step back and go, right, two states. Did we have enough information from this experiment or not? And if we don't have enough information on this experiment, what do we do next? Do we abandon this and say that this was something that, you know, we, we didn't get enough, so it wasn't statistically significant? Or do we look at scaling it in a different way to try and get this, uh, as many as we can? So we continue this experiment on. Or if we did get enough information, then what was the outcome of that? Did we prove or disprove our hypothesis? And if we proved our hypothesis, do we roll that into our business as usual? Do we make that change across the board? Or do we look at running another experiment and trying to scale that even more? So it was a moment to actually analyze not just the outcome, but what the next steps are. So that's, in a nutshell, that's the chasing method. So think test and learn framework with some fancy little add-ons. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like, I, I am super excited. I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but it is like super high on my list too. Uh, it's, it's full of cheesy jokes, by the way, just warning you. Um, my whole goal when I wrote the book is I wanted anyone who read it to feel like I was sitting there having a conversation with them. Yeah. I didn't want it to come from, you know, you know, very studious, very, you know, um, research kind of, well, oh, this, this study and that study and this study. There's a lot of that in there, but I want it to feel like it was just sitting down over a pint of beer or a single malt scotch, having a conversation and, um, and just learning and gleaning from, from all the mistakes that I've made over my career. Right. Yeah. No, it, it very much fits in with, um, with your brand in terms of just making everything very accessible and yeah. making, uh, marketing seem more more complex and complicated than it has to be so okay so if, if listeners are interested in reading your book connecting with you where do they find you what go ahead plug plug all of your oh wow there you go well i make this really easy for you by the way so um everything's all in one place uh chasing the insights.com um so that's the home of my podcast. Uh, you'll, you'll hear me interviewing marketing, sales, entrepreneurial leaders, um, but it's also the home of my book. So you can get my book there. There's a link to Amazon on there, et cetera. Um, there's also links to my social media and there's a Facebook group that I hang out in. Uh, it's my Facebook group. So come and join me in there. That's probably the easiest way to get direct access to me, by the way. I'm always open to a conversation. If anyone's got anything, any big challenges they're facing, they just need a breath of fresh air to, to count, you know, some extra eyes to look on it, then reach out to me. Um, the first call is always free, I say, um, so <laughs> just in case they come back and go, hey, I want to talk to you 20 times. Can you help me create a marketing strategy? I can, but it's going to cost you. Um, but now look, I'm always keen to reach out to people and people reach out to me. But the other thing too, which I've got coming up is uh, two big things, which are going to be on the website. One of them is on there now, which is the summit. So on the uh, 3rd, 4th and 5th of February, we have the 2021 A Year of Growth Summit. So uh, like I said before, it's bringing together 30 of the leaders in the industry. So your George Bryant's, your Kinsey Mackis, your Ashley May Fernandez, your Kelly Cochran's, all these amazing leaders in the industry, uh, helping you to position yourself for growth, helping you to empower yourself, encourage yourself. Basically the principle behind it was really, really simple. 
Um, I was aware that as entrepreneurs, we take time off over Christmas. Hopefully, if you didn't, what are you doing with your life? Right. Um, <laughs> you should be taking time off over Christmas and New Year, spending it with your family or your friends or your loved ones or your pets, whatever you're into, but a chance for you to re-energize and recharge your batteries. And then we all do the same thing. We come back with our, our new goals for the year or our resolutions, whatever you're into there, our plan to, our plan to world domination. We come back in January and we are pumped up. We're like, this is my year. I am, I'm going to crush it. I've got all this renewed energy, renewed momentum, renewed uh, motivation. Uh, but come the first week of February, the same thing happens to all of us. We were like, I'm tired or I'm doing my old habits again or I'm knee deep in the weeds and I'm kind of the, the, the speed, the momentum that you had is not quite there anymore. Things aren't quite going as fast as you want. So what I wanted to do was to get everyone to take a deep breath, to pause, to take a step back and go, okay, let's have a look at how to position ourselves for growth. Because I want every entrepreneur, particularly everyone that attends that summit, but I want them all to absolutely nail it this year. I want 2021 after the uh, dumpster fire that was 2020, um, which we don't talk about anymore. But I want them to just go, you know what, this is going to be my year. So I've got all these people together, freely giving up their time. It's a free summit. Um, so that you can learn how to position yourself for growth. So that's going to be advertised on there. You'll just click on the summit menu items. I make menus really easy, by the way. It's podcast, book, summit, insider club, all those kind of things. They, they very clear for you when you get there. But the other thing I'm launching at the end of uh, February, uh, which is going to be on the website very soon, is my group program. And through 2020, as I said, this was a pivotal year for me. It's a year of change where I accidentally fell into coaching. Um, but it also is a year where I saw so much impact in the entrepreneurs that I'm working with. And that was something deeply satisfying, but it also made me realize I need to help even more people. I need to be able to try and scale what I'm doing so that I can impact as many people as possible. So one of the ways to do that is a group program. And I'm putting together a three-month accelerator, which takes you through my four-stage process called EARN, which is examine, assemble, raise the roof and next level. Because again, you've got to come up with an acronym. And I thought EARN was a cool acronym. Um, but, but really is the four stages of how to grow your business, how to deeply understand the type of entrepreneur you are, the type of customers you're wanting to target, the type of business you're trying to build. But also it's, it's then examining your story, your journey, like how you pitch yourself, all these things. Then the assemble part is just putting it all together, auditing your website, auditing all your marketing. I do marketing reviews every week with, the, with everyone in the program. They can run their copy past me, their marketing past me, and I'll give them feedback on that, uh, give them perspective on that. Uh, it's teaching them SEO, it's teaching them oh, search engine, getting found on Google. There you go. It teaches them getting found on Google, it teaches them how to do social media, all those kind of things. And then the next two, the raise the roof and next level is about scaling upwards and then scaling outwards. So it's being able to generate more leads and convert more leads for your business under the R part. But then under next level, it is about two things. It is about scaling outwards. So looking at how you can add more value to your customers and therefore get more value back from them. But also it's how to position yourself as a thought leader. It's how to, it's how to become a published author. It's how to get featured on podcasts or, or start your own podcast. It's how to come up with your own frameworks and your way of operating that position you as a leader in the industry. So so super excited about that. That's launching end of February. I'm doing a foundation members um, part of the uh, program there. So for very little money, they get in and they commit to giving me feedback, commit to giving me testimonials. So that, like I teach, we can co-create together. So it's really, really simple. And so yeah, so chasingtheinsights.com. Everything's there. It's really easy. <laughs> yeah. And you're writing two books. 
I am writing two books. I'm so writing. You basically, uh, you basically have nothing going on, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm really bored at the you're, moment. You're like um, sitting, I guess. I yeah, just sitting watching rewatching The Mandalorian over and over. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. Now I'm, look, I am writing two books at the moment. One is um, one actually came as a joke. So I during lockdown, me and my wife would go for walks every night. In fact, we we do that anyway. But we were going for a walk, and I was having a bit of a not a wind session, but I was going, oh, it's really frustrating. She goes, what? And I said, I'm known for so many different things in the industry, like coffee line tests, um, like uh, all these different things. And she was like, yeah. And I said, but the problem is none of them are really significant enough to write a whole book on. And she was being really sarcastic in a joking way. She loves to wind me up and she goes, yeah, yeah, it's almost like you need to put them together in one book and call it 13 Underground Marketing Secrets. <laughs> and I went, oh, that's so lame. And we both chuckled and I go, yeah, lame, lame. And I go, damn it, that's actually really good. And now I have to admit to her it was her idea. <laughs> so, so that's a, a really easy book for me to write because it is literally all the things that I teach all the time. But the other book is, is taking a bit longer and it's really important to me. And it's called Anti-Perfect. And it really is, it is all the stuff I talk about with um, imposter syndrome, with self-doubt, with the claws that those nasty things get into us and the self-sabotage that we often do as entrepreneurs and marketers. Um, so it's teaching people to create their own operating system for their brain. It's understanding how the brain works with the whole concept of thinking brain, observing brain. It's understanding the difference between fear and excitement. It's understanding how to embrace imposter syndrome and all these things as well. So so that's I'm super proud of that, but that's going to be one that I know is going to help a lot of people because it's going to help me. Uh, I'm writing it selfishly for me um, and all the stuff I work through, but also I know um, just by talking to and coaching so many different entrepreneurs, I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, I, for one, am very excited to go. I'm going to go download this book tonight. I'll, I'll be reading it when I'm up at 2 a.m. Um, <laughs> yeah. hopefully not um, but thank you so much for your time today I am genuinely very excited that we were able to connect and this was such a great conversation so thank you thank you for your time well and thank you for having me any time to catch up with you is it's fun I honestly as soon as you and I started connecting I was like yeah there's just some people you know are awesome and you know love what they do and love serving other people so it was a pleasure such a good conversation. We covered a ton of ground and a lot of topics, so I hope you were able to soak it all in. I immediately logged off this recording session and downloaded Vince's book, which I am super pumped to read. Today, I'll leave you with a reminder not to chase the wins, but to chase the insights. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to Startup Marketing to help other women like you find this podcast. Until next time.